0: this message was shared from the pulpit at good news baptist church in chesapeake virginia for more information visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org please join me in opening your bibles to the book of colossians chapter 2 and tonight as we turn to the book of colossians together we're entering the second chapter of this letter to the Christians of Colossae and of course Paul did not actually write this letter in chapters we understand that that those divisions are simply a reference aid for us but as we begin this second chapter of this book we find Paul using a tone that is a little different from what he's used up to this point in this book of Colossians uh, tonight, we're going to be a little slow getting to the crux of the message. I want you to stay with me here. Um, we're, we're not going to be getting to the heart of the message for a little bit, and the reason is I want to follow the way that Paul comes at this. Uh, he's going to use the first several verses of this chapter really to, to set the stage and turn on the spotlights to get to the truth that's really at the heart, the challenge that he wants to share with this church. Have you ever had the experience when you're talking to someone and uh, maybe the conversation is going along and then all of a sudden their, their tone of voice changes? Maybe their voice drops a little bit. Maybe there's a new intensity to the way they're saying things. And all of a sudden you realize... That this has gone from just uh, two people talking to each other about whatever to this person sharing their heart. They're really opening up and sharing with you the truth of what's inside. They're they're sharing what they really feel about what they're what they're talking about. And those are those are precious moments. Those are meaningful moments when we realize that we're not just talking face to face. We're talking heart to heart. That is a blessing. And when those moments happen, we really tend to listen up. Well, in Colossians 2, as we start this chapter, Paul is bearing his heart to these Colossian believers. He begins by talking about some pretty intense emotions that he's experiencing, and we get the sense that suddenly that the tone of what he's saying is changing a little bit. He's been talking to them, he's been sharing truth, but, but suddenly we realize Paul, with no doubt, is sharing his heart. He opens up to them in a really personal way because he's getting ready to share a truth with them that's really important. And he wants their attention. He wants them to know this is something that he's serious about. So he just concluded chapter 1 by talking about the ministry that God has given to him. And... Uh, his ministry of preparing Christians for the day that they'll stand before Christ. And he says that he is striving towards that goal in the closing verses of chapter one. He follows that up in verse one of chapter two by saying, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He talks about a great conflict And this conflict and the striving back in verse 29 of chapter 1, these are sister words, all right? The ideas are interconnected. It's not the same word in Paul's letters, but they're, they're words that are connected. And both are words that would be used by athletes or by soldiers. That's the context in which we would expect to find the words that he's using here. He's talking about a great conflict. He's using a colorful word to express the reality of an inner struggle. There's something with a lot of intensity going on inside Paul when it comes to this church at Colossae, the, the believers at Laodicea, these other, these other churches, these other Christians who he hasn't met, who he doesn't know personally, there's something going on and it's intense. Paul's communicating to this church that his interest in them isn't just cursory or intellectual. He's not just saying, well, there are some Christians out there in Colossae, and I suppose that that ought to interest me since I'm a Christian. He's saying, this is a lot deeper than that. It's a lot more meaningful for me than that. They and these other groups of believers are dear to Paul. He cares deeply about what happens to them spiritually. So, what is Paul's burden for this and the other churches that he's never met? He's got this inner struggle going on. He said, "There's inside my heart, there's a conflict, there's a struggle. This is, this is a difficult thing for me. I've got this burden, and it seems almost too heavy to bear. So what is the burden that he has for them? Well, he says uh, th- that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we could easily spend the rest of our time digging into those words that he shares there and the nature of these things that he's concerned about for this church. And it would be well worth our time. Um, But we've got more verses to cover. So I'm just going to summarize this really quickly. So what he's saying is, what does he want to see? What is his desire for these believers? What is his desire for these different churches that he's never met? Well, he desires for them that inwardly their hearts would be at peace. He wants them to experience the peace of God. He wants them among themselves to experience unity. He wants these believers to be unified around Christ. He wants them to know the peace of God. He wants them to be unified. He wants them, with their relationship with God, to taste the fullness of of settled conviction and to discover the treasures of wisdom that are found in Christ. So he wants them to know peace, he wants them to have unity, he wants them to grow in their understanding and their wisdom and to come to know the riches of the, the greatness of who Christ is and the wisdom that is found in him. If we really summarize it up and, and, and look at it simply, that's what he wants for this church and for these other churches he's not met. These are the things on his heart as he cares for this church, as he prays for them, as he writes them this letter. So as he begins to share his heart, he's saying, I've got this, this deep burden. I've got this struggle inside because this is what I want to see happen in these churches. But he goes on, he continues to share his heart with them, and he shares also his joy So first, verse 4, he gives a quick word of warning. He says, in this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Later in this book, we'll talk some more about um, his concern about those who might try to deceive them, who would bring false doctrine in. But he's saying, part of the reason I'm sharing all of this is because I don't want somebody to come in there with a golden tongue and get you to stop believing all these things I've taught you about. I want you to realize this is important. I'm not just some teacher out there and I've got my pet doctrine and I'm going around and sharing it with people and hoping people will believe it. He says, no, this is, this is essential. And I'm not just trying to get a following. My heart is in this. I truly care for you. I don't want to see this happen to you. I don't want to see somebody come in there and deceive you. And uh, this is a side note, but a reminder to us that just because someone speaks well doesn't mean they speak the truth. He says, they could come in with enticing words and they could lead you into falsehood. Just because they have enticing words doesn't mean that they're speaking the truth. But then he says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he says, when I think of you in my heart, I don't just feel this struggle for you, this, this burden for you, but I also feel joy. Because in spirit, I'm there among you. Now, he mentioned in chapter 1 that he found out about what's going on in this church from Epaphras. Epaphras came and told him, here's what's going on in Colossae. And Paul says, I'm rejoicing in what I've heard about. And in spirit, I'm right there among you. I'm sitting there among you as you're worshiping together. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing the work that God is doing. What is he joying in here? Well, again, quickly, we could spend time with this, but... He talks about their orderliness and their unshaking faith. So their orderliness, they're doing things the right way. This isn't haphazard. This isn't, ah, it doesn't matter how we do this. They care. They realize there is a right way to do things, and they're seeking to do things the right way. And Paul says, I rejoice in that. But also he he talks about the steadfastness of their faith. Their faith is unwavering. Not only are they doing the right things, they're doing the right things for the right reason. And so he's joying in that. He's excited about that. And, and he, he shares this. He says, here is my heart when it comes to you, Colossians. Those of you believers in that city, these other cities I haven't been to, here's my heart for you. Here is what is, is, is just burning in my heart towards you. I've got this burden that God would do this work in you. I've got this joy as I see the work that he is doing in you. But he's still building to something here. All right, he shared a lot of truth here, but he's still building to what I would say is is kind of the pinnacle of what he's sharing here. He's mentioned the struggle in his heart. He's mentioned the joy. He cares for this church. He's committed to seeing them walk the right path. You know, every Sunday, we have two missionary letters in our bulletin. And I confess to you that I forgot to even pray for those missionaries this morning as part of the service. It's easy to overlook the fact that those letters are there. And today it was, we, uh, we were praying for the Gormans. They're out in Colorado planting a church. And we were praying for the Georges serving in Romania. And uh, it's exciting to, to read these letters Uh, to hear about the progress that the Gormans are making as they're seeking to to plant this church, to hear about some opportunities the Georges have uh, with a potential camp property. They've got um, some opportunities to minister to Ukrainian uh, people, and they're seeking more opportunities there. It's exciting to read these things and see what's going on there. But if you're like me, most of the time, with these letters, uh, we'll, we'll read through it, or perhaps on a Wednesday night, we'll hear it read from the pulpit. And uh, we'll pray briefly for those missionaries. We'll rejoice briefly about what's going on. And, and that's about where it ends most of the time. Uh, we're, we, we pray for them that one time. They're on our mind and our heart. And then it, it passes away until the next time that prayer letter comes up. But often when it comes to these things, as we're hearing about what's going on with believers in different parts of the world, there's none of this agony of our soul. None of this deep joy that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 2. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every time we have a missionary letter we ought to read it with just agonized tears and be heartbroken over it and and fasting and praying for extended periods of time. Um, That's not what I'm saying ought to be happening necessarily. But I don't think this idea of being burdened deeply for the welfare of other believers, even those outside of our immediate context, it ought not be a foreign idea to us. This ought to be part of our Christian life. Paul has never even met most of these people, and yet he says, this is just, it's consuming me inside. There's this conflict going on, and I've got to tell you about it. And in spirit, I'm right there among you. And you can tell that this is something that matters deeply to him. This is challenging for me to think about. You know, God does have a way of knitting our hearts together with other Christians, even across geography. And many of you, no doubt, could give testimony of times when we've heard about what's going on with our missionary family, and we have entered into that. We have sorrowed with them. We have prayed. We have pled with God for them. But let's remember that just because the Christians are in another place doesn't mean that we can just forget about what's going on with them. We need to let our hearts be touched. We need to be willing to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, even if they're thousands of miles away. And Paul gives us a great example of this. Just imagine the burden on his heart with all of these Christians in different places. And yet he allowed himself to be touched by that. He allowed himself to care. He was willing to seek to invest even across those miles. Even when there's so many others that he could be investing in. Now, I, I, I love the local church. I thank God for the local church. But I can make the excuse sometimes... Well, we've got plenty to think about and care about right here at Good News, and that's true. But let God knit your heart with believers in other places too. Let yourself care, let yourself enter in to what's going on with our missionaries and the believers they're working with and and they're seeking to reach, the people they're seeking to reach. Again, that's a little bit of a side note, but I, I, I think that as we see Paul's heart here, We ought to be challenged by that. We have to think about this. So, Paul has really shared his heart. He's made it clear that the plea here in Colossians is a personal plea. This isn't just something he's saying because he's supposed to, this is something that is personal for him. He cares about it deeply. So, if this church goes wrong, Paul is going to be crushed. Their growth is his joy, but their downfall would be his heartbreak. But why say all of this? Why make such a point of all this? Why spend this time talking about how he's emotionally and personally invested in this church? Why is he taking all of this time to set this up? Well, I'm sure you've had the experience before. Maybe it was listening to a sermon. Maybe somebody was speaking for for another reason. And uh, this is somebody who's speaking who's not one of those teary-eyed people who, who the tears just come anytime they're in front of people. This is not one of those people. But they're speaking, they're sharing their heart, they're talking about something, perhaps sharing a message from God's word, and they come to a certain point, and then they begin to weep. The tears begin to come to their eyes. And that happens... And maybe up to that point, you've been kind of listening half-heartedly. You've you've had half your mind on the sermon, half of your mind on something else. You're paying attention well enough to know what the sermon's about, but maybe you're not 100% there. But when that moment comes and they begin to weep, those tears begin to come, all of a sudden, what happens? Your attention is riveted. What is it? that has touched the heart of this person to that degree. How could they care this much? Why would they care this much? What is it that, that, is, that is moving their heart to this point? And I think that's part of why Paul takes the time to do what he does in verses 1 through 5. He, he's not physically weeping in front of this church. But he's doing about the, the closest he can come with words... He's saying, I'm, I'm showing you what's on, in my heart. I'm showing you how much this matters to me. And as this church thinks about this, as they hear his words, they're going to sit a little straighter. They're going to listen a little closer to say, if Paul cares this much, we need to listen to what he has to say. And so what is it that he's been building to? He shared his heart in order to challenge this church with something. And so we come to Paul's charge in verses 6 and 7. The challenge here is simple, but like much of what Paul says in this letter, it's full of truth and challenge. So he says, "...as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And now we finally come to the key concept of tonight's message, faith. Now, I'm sure we've all heard messages on faith. But what is faith? And I have to say before I even begin to offer an explanation that faith is one of those one of those jewels of our of biblical truth, that we can consider different facets of it. But if there is a way to hold it up in a way that we see all of its beauty at one time, I am, I am not the guy that knows how to do that. So at the very best, we'll be able to consider a few facets of what faith is, just a little glimpse of the beauty of what faith is. But we need to at least have an idea, what are we talking about? Well, strictly speaking, faith is belief. Faith is being persuaded that something is true. But as we we come to understand this concept in Scripture, we quickly come to understand that that's not all there is to faith. It's not just being sure that something is true. Some people think that faith is all about what I think. It's mental assent. If I say I agree, that's faith. It's about believing certain things to be true and declaring that. But faith is more than just intellectual orthodoxy. And as I grapple with what faith is and trying to, trying to define it, one of the most helpful passages to me is Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith this way. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now that in itself is a bit of a confusing verse. Um, Because it seems to have some paradoxes going on. You've got evidence of things not seen. You've got things that you can't see being seen. Uh, You've got things that are only hoped for, but here's the substance of those things, even though they're only hoped for. But some of you will remember back in the spring when we began this series in Colossians, and we looked at the concept of hope. Hope, we found, is looking beyond It's sight that reaches past what's just here and now to that which is eternal. Well, faith is that hope, that that looking beyond the experience of right now to the realities uh, that await me in eternity. Faith is that hope lived out today. So back to what he says in Hebrews 11.1, it is the substance of things hoped for. So hope is looking beyond and saying, here is what I know is true from scripture. I might not be experiencing it yet. I might not see it, but I know it's true. Faith is putting substance to that hope. It's living it out. It's acting out what I say I believe. Faith takes our hope and says, well, If that's the truth about what's to come, then this is the reality in which I ought to live today. Faith is living in the reality of what we know to be true. Faith is living in Christ. Now, how do you get to work each day? Maybe you work from home, and so you don't have a commute. Maybe in order to get to work, you drive your own vehicle. Maybe you walk, maybe you ride a bike, maybe you use public transportation. Maybe you say, work? What's that? (laughs) But picture a man with me, we'll call him Fred. And Fred takes the bus to work each day. At 7.35 each morning, there he stands, ready to hop on the bus to be at work by the 8 a.m. start of his shift. And... (laughs) (laughs) We got a bus driver in the house. And let's say that by some impossible means, Fred finds out one morning that the bus he would be riding that day is going to crash into a tractor trailer during what would normally be his commute. How would you expect Fred to behave? Well, if he was a good citizen, he would no doubt call the bus company letting them know of what's going to happen. Um, Although, you know, they probably wouldn't believe him. But he would do his, his duty to warn them. And then, of course, at 7.35 that morning, we would find him standing in his normal place at the bus stop waiting for the bus, right? No. What a fool he'd have to be if he did that, right? If he knows what's coming... Fred is going to change his behavior accordingly. That might mean inconvenience for him. It might mean extra cost. But he's going to find a different way to work that morning because he knows what's coming and what's going to happen to that bus. We would think him a fool if he didn't act according to what he knew was coming. And we as believers know what's coming. We understand spiritual truths. We know that Jesus is coming again. We know that we'll all be judged and that those who do not know Christ will be sentenced to eternity in a burning lake of fire. We know that that's what's coming. We know that only the spiritual and the eternal will matter on the day when we stand before Christ. The question is, do we act? Do we live according to what we know? Or do we keep our 735 appointment at the bus stop? Because that's more comfortable, it's more convenient in the moment. Faith is hope with feet and hands. It's hope that acts out, that lives out its confidence in God today. So when Paul says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, he's saying in essence, exercise your faith. When we receive Christ, we are declaring that we believe the claims of scripture about man's sin nature, about Christ's atonement, and about what awaits us in eternity. We are declaring all of that when we come and trust Christ as Savior. Paul is saying that at salvation you declared, you might not have said it all with your words, but you said it with your actions. You declared that there is a life beyond what I am currently physically experiencing. There are realities that are beyond just this physical world. You were declaring that there is a heaven and a hell. There is a judgment day. Whether you said it or not with your words, when you came to Christ, you declared those things. An individual placing their faith in Christ is declaring all of that with that action. And Paul says, you said that when you received Christ. You declared your hope. At salvation, you said, there is a God, and he is king. There is eternity, and everyone will spend it somewhere. I am a sinner, and Jesus Christ is the Savior. You declared all that. Now live out your declaration. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, I apologize for bringing anything related to politics into a sermon but we've all seen the dynamics of international politics play out. And we see certain countries, or to be accurate, the leaders of certain countries, make promises or capitulate to demands, and then, when the time feels right, go back on their promises. We've seen that happen many times through history. And with certain leaders, we can begin to adopt a certain attitude that when we hear about some commitment they've made, We would say, I'll believe it when I see it. They might make promises, but their track record causes us to disbelieve them until they follow through. Well, you have said you received Christ, and that you believe that this life is not just about this life, but that it's about preparing for eternity. You've said that you believe laying up treasure in heaven is more important than laying up treasure on earth. Could someone around you be tempted to challenge you? I'll believe it when I see it. You've received Christ. You've declared your confidence and your dependence on him. Now live out your declaration. Paul goes on to expand on this idea with pictorial language. He says, uh, and this is verse, uh, make sure I'm right here, verse 7. I'll read from verse 6 just to get us into the context. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, two images spring to our minds as we read Paul's words here, and with intent. We see the image of a plant and the image of a building. And I want to consider each in turn as we think about what those images can teach us. Paul talks about being rooted in Christ. Now Jesus used a parable to talk about the the work of God's word in our hearts and uh, saying that there's these different soils that represents different hearts, but the good soil is that that receives uh, the seed, the word of God, and, and bears fruit. And so we're familiar with this principle that, as we receive Christ, we're receiving his word. It's planted in our hearts. Well, Paul is expanding on that idea now. So that the truth is planted. Uh, we are, we are uh, the, the growth has begun. We are that plant. But there is more that needs to happen than just the initial planting. You're planted in him, Paul's saying. Now you've got to run your roots down. James 1, uh, 6 through 8, I'm not going to read from there, but you're pro- many of you are probably familiar with the verses. It, it contrasts uh, faith and wavering. It talks about the one who wavers, being like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And a man who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. But we understand On the flip side, that the man of faith is rooted and grounded. Instead of being tossed side to side by everything that happens, he's firm, unmoving. Often when a hurricane comes through our area, we'll hear about someone we know who has a tree fall in their yard, and hopefully not on their house. When that happens, and you see that when a tree is uprooted, it's always interesting to me, to, to look at it and see the, the mess of roots there, all the intricacies of that, and often be amazed that that much root structure could be torn out of the ground. And it makes us wonder, you know, what, what's, the, what's the threshold? So what did it take as far as the ground being saturated? And, and the, the winds, what was it that brought that tree to the point that it couldn't hold on anymore and it was torn up by its roots? And then that sets us to thinking, well, what's the threshold on the other trees? That tall pine tree, that huge oak tree, that tree that looks like it might fall the wrong direction if it fell. What's its threshold? What would it take for it to be uprooted? And we get in danger if we think about that for too long. But... It's an interesting question. How much stress can that tree take before it's uprooted? With our faith, what does it take to shake us? What does it take to make us begin to question our our faith in God? What is it that causes us to begin to waver? Where's that threshold? How deep do your roots go? Paul is saying, you've received the Lord, walk in him, run your roots down into him. Uh, Grow in your understanding of who he is. Grow in your experience with him. You need to run those roots down. But he also uses this metaphor of a building. Uh, Paul talked about uh, about being built up in Christ and established in the faith. The foundation is in Christ and now each stage of the building process needs to be firmly built on that foundation. So all that's being built into your life needs to continue to be built on Christ. Each brick that's laid needs to be laid properly in place according to his specifications. You think about a blueprint and there's a lot of thought, a lot of study, a lot of research that goes into creating good blueprints. Those who are who are working behind the scenes on this, have to consider lots of different um, uh, factors to make sure that things are built properly, that they can withstand the pressure they'll need to withstand. But you imagine an engineer taking those blueprints and saying, I don't really like the way this looks too much, I'll just change it up here. Oh, I think this would work. Ah, that looks good enough. Ah, I I I think that we can make do with that. It doesn't have to be just so according to the blueprints you'd end up in a mess. And there are actually some tragic stories from history about blueprints that were not followed very carefully and disaster ensued. Paul charges the church of Colossae, walk in him. They need to be built up in him. So, every step needs to be as he leads. Every brick that is built in their lives needs to be built according to his specifications. He encourages them to abound in what they've been taught with thanksgiving. Uh, and that, the, the picture there is of overflowing. It makes me think again of a, of a plant. There are certain plants that it just seems like you can't hold them back. They're just always running out more and they're growing up in places you wouldn't expect and it seems like you just can't keep them at bay. That's the picture that comes to my mind with this, with this uh, word of abounding. And so if we put it all together, we can get this image. Paul is saying, here's what needs to happen. You as believers need to be a plant with deep roots. Your growth is being guided by the, the farmer, by the, the husbandman. And you're just continuing to put out new branches. You're continuing to abound in fruit. You're just growing to the point that it just seems beyond reason. That's what needs to happen. That's what living by faith needs to look like. So faith is living in Christ. Paul knows, and these believers know, that everyone who is saved is in Christ. It is a reality that everyone who has trusted Christ is in Christ. But it is one thing to be in Christ in reality, and another thing to be in Christ in experience. Paul is not saying, this is who you need to really try hard to be. This is what the, the Christian life ought to look like. You need to strive to be in Christ. You need to work really hard to reach that goal where you can say you're in Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, try really hard to look like this. He's saying, live out who you already are. You're already in Christ. You need to be living like you're in Christ. That's what needs to be the reality of what your life looks like, not just who you are in reality spiritually, but it needs to be showing itself. If tomorrow morning I took you and I dropped you in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, it would no doubt be an interesting experience for you. And uh, I, I doubt that very many of us would enjoy the experience or uh, make it out of it unscathed. But say that I did that horrible thing to you, and you decided, you know what, this is all a bad dream. Uh, this isn't real. I'm still actually safe back in Hampton Roads, so I'm going to go about my life as I normally would. And so you try to live out your normal first world routine in the jungle. It, it wouldn't work out very well. I'm pretty sure that Prime does not deliver to the Amazon. You got it. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. If you, were, if you were to make the most of this situation, or honestly, even if you were going to make it out of it alive, the first step to take is to come to grips with the reality of where you're at. You can't go around lying to yourself and saying, oh, I'm actually back home. You need to realize, here's where I am. Come to grips with that truth and begin to live accordingly. We are called on to do the same throughout scripture. Those of us who are saved are the children of God. We have been born again. We have been crucified with Christ and raised to new life with him. And again, this is not; these things are not shared with us to say, Here, now you've got to work on drumming this up. This is about living out that which is already true. Live in Christ. Take each step consciously dependent on him, looking to the eternal realities that we cannot see. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. This was a matter of passion for Paul. He struggled inwardly deeply as he desired this work to be accomplished in these believers' lives. How about us? How important is it to us that we be walking in Christ as we have received him? How important is it to us that that work be happening in the lives of others? We have been planted in Christ. Are we running our roots down into him as we grow in knowledge of him and in practical experience of his grace? Are we being rooted and built up in him? Are we allowing each step, each brick that goes into the wall to be guided by him? Are we living conscious of the fact that all of life is in him? Are we experiencing grateful overflowing as his grace works through our faith and brings a continual profusion of growth and fruit? Are these the realities of what we're experiencing? Because this is what Paul says is the truth about who we are in Christ and what our lives ought to look like and what his burden is for this church at Colossae. And this is the reality of what God wants to do in and through us. This is what living by faith ought to look like. That each day we are consciously living each moment in Christ. We're not independent. We are completely dependent on him. We are not free agents out doing whatever we want. We are part of the body of Christ. We are in him. He is the master. He is the, 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 the only wisdom that can guide what we're doing. And we need to surrender and live consciously in that fact. That's what Paul is telling this church. That's what he's saying as his heart is overflowing with his care for them, his concern for them, saying this is what I want to see God doing in you and through you. And I believe that's what God wants to do here at Good News Baptist Church, that we would live each day by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit, answer the question in our own minds and own hearts now. For each one who is a believer here tonight, am I living by faith? Lord, we cannot begin to even describe the riches of what we know through being in Christ. The amazing truth of that. But Father, so often we get our eyes off of Christ and we act as if we are not in Christ. We live as if we are not in Christ. And Father, that is, is, is so foolish and it is so sad when we stray in that way. Guide us, we ask. Help us, as we have received Christ, so to walk in him. Help us be rooted. Help us be built up in him. Help us to abound with thanksgiving. Lord, grow us, we ask. May faith mark each of our lives. Could it truly be said of each of us that we walk by faith? Guide us in this, we pray. Do your work in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening.